0: Live from Cape Town, this is The Voice of the Cape. The Voice of the Cape. The
1: Voice of
2: the Cape.
3: as Alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. This is The Burning Issue. I'm standing in 41 Ahmed, 91.3 FM stereo. Ahmed, I believe it's Ahmed according to uh, Faiz. Thank you for that. 95.8 FM stereo in the Poland. Now, it's an interesting discussion today. Is the allegiance of Cape Townian Muslims to Saudi Arabia's discourse of Islam? And how has the, you know, quote, "Saudization," Saudization of Islam in the Cape impacted our understanding of politics in the Middle East? Is it an allegiance to that? And also, do Islamic universities provide religious education? intertwined with their political agendas now if you have an opinion on that you can call us in 021 but that's probably towards the end of the show we don't have much time now 021 442 sms 47913 or whatsapp your comment on 072 I'm Yasin Kippy. now the Cape Muslim community over the years has been has had great development in numbers and in religious freedom. With this freedom and with the rise of globalization, it's become a cosmopolitan of various discourses within Islam. The maintenance of an Islamic and Muslim identity from the time of Tawang Yusuf, rahimahullah, to the current myriad of institutions Hope, love, and warmth has been the pathway to unity. But when questions arise of the removal of one group, classically rooted in Islam, as being out of the fold, as being kuffar, contestations arise, and the political motives are questioned. With the rise of graduates from the universities in the Middle East as far back as 1938, the call for reformation has been heeded by many in the Cape. And the effects of this this call has been seen. But with the plethora of ideologies in in the Cape, with specific reference to the engagement in this issue by the contributors to tonight's program. And it's really important to note, you know, that the contributors to, to tonight's program, it's people who are directly have spoken about the ideology, you know, behind Saudi Arabia's discourse and also the discourse of the Cape Muslim community. The question is, do we face our allegiance to one brand of Islam? In particular, do we mirror the Islam as propagated by Saudi Arabia? In light of their leadership in, for example, the Arab Islamic Summit held in Riyadh last month, seeing King Salman and Donald Trump taking center stage with the rest of the Middle East watching on, are religious institutions in the Gulf producing graduates who are intertwined with their political agendas? Why ask these questions? And why am I opening up Pandora's box at a time of intense Islamophobic tension? The answer is simple. As a youth, and for many youth, in order to turn the anger and frustration of the youth to positive action, we must bring the ulama together, we must bring people together to sojourn and to journey through pathways of unity and love. To remember the spirit of Islam and to engage the inward and the outward of the deen in a way that makes the Cape Muslim community an example for all. Following now is pre-recorded interviews of people who have had a direct link with the topic. First up is the historical overview of the discourses of Islam and how it manifested in Cape Town. And that's Dr. Abdul Qartayb, Professor at University of Cape Town.
2: Salal Asad is the son of Muhammad Asad, who suggested that he wants to talk about the discourse of Islam. Okay. That there has been a debate and a discussion about what Islam is right from the death of the Prophet Wasallam. Oh. So basically, <laughs> since then, there has always been some kind of a disagreement or some kind of... A, and, and I think he, it's, it's a good idea to think about it. There's always been a discussion. There's always been a debate. There's never been a settled position because... When there is a settlement, well, you can only have a settlement if you have, you know, God speaking to you directly, or yeah. you have the settlement when, the, when and the Prophet is there that he says. Now, because we Muslims believe that there is no Prophet after the Prophet Muhammad, yes. that's why you don't, you can't have a definitive position that this is Islam or that is Islam. From an outside perspective, maybe from an anthropological perspective, people go to, uh, you know, if they had parachuted in the uh, 18th century, uh, you know, in South Africa, or 19th century in South Africa, then they would have said, oh, Islam looks like this. But Talal Asad said, basically, start looking at the discussions that are going on among Muslims, and you will see that there are some kind of debates going on. Now, with that kind of background, you need to say, okay, where does this start from? I think it can be traced to the work of Ahmed Davids, you know, who wrote on the mosques of Borkha. He started writing about the establishment of mosques as institutions, all the way, you know, before the beginning of the 19th century mm-hmm. just when the co- dutch east india company rule was changing to you know batavian rule and then to the british as such but at that point in time people you know there was already a kind of a contestation among uh, for example uh, Tuan Guru. not tuanguru tuanguru was like the founder of islam because he was established in the first first mosque mm-hmm. but as soon as he died there was a dis- disagreement between Ahmed van Bengalen, who was his successor, who was the successor of Tuankuru, mm-hmm. and Jan van Burius, who was the Imam of the Palm Tree Mosque. Okay. And I think it's a good idea to actually look at that history. I mean, we cannot go into the detail, but... Mm-hmm i think that one can begin to look at the differences of opinion or the different positions that are taken and those differences come from a different way that you read a text from the quran or you read history or you your own social background all of that are filtered into an understanding of islam Mm -hmm. and since that time you can speak about waves you know (laughs) let me just mention the most important uh, abu Bakr efendi when he was sent by the ottomans you know to come and settle the disputes here again we had a different We had discourses we have debates okay what is the nature of islam he brought a certain kind of modernism i mean he didn't call it like that but one can see that he was promoting for example the political participation of muslims he was then later when people like sheikh uh, shakir hamildin came here he brought in some interesting ideas because he studied with the students of rashid then you think about people who came in from you know from indian tradition maybe from the diobandi ideas then they came up with the new ideas so I think there's, whenever there are new scholars or new people coming in, they actually disrupt the kind of norm, the norms that are existing in the society, and then you have a debate. I rather think about this as a kind of a discussion, and in fact uh, uh, one can think about, uh, radio stations, initially it used to be people used to debate sit in the mosque, right? I mean, people used to have these uh, uh, Ahmed David says that they used to have this bichara, you know, to discuss what happened yeah. but now with the new media, especially with things like Muslim Views, later Muslim News, later Al-Qalam all kinds of newspapers come up here and they all are, are debating, you know, with each other sometimes face to face, sometimes you know, not always direct as such. Yeah. and what one, one can speak about is a kind of a a very robust uh, a discourse, a discu- discuss, discussion about, you know, what do we do? How do we practice Allah, How do you do this? How do you do that? And that, is, that is almost like the nature of, of Islam, uh, very much like that.
3: Why was there a need for reformation in Cape Town specifically? And what led to that?
2: Let me first start by, you know, saying that basically what you have in Muslim societies there is, there's always a kind of an element within Muslim society, no matter how tranquil and how peaceful they are. Yeah. That there's somebody will always come up and say, "Well, according to the Hadith, you are not following this, or according to the Quranic verse, you are not following this." That is a kind of an inbuilt system in the early in the, in the traditions that we have from the beginning of Islam. At least we have this idea called Tajdid. It is Mujaddid, and in the Hadith it says that at the end of every 100 years there will be a Mujaddid who will mm-hmm. come and who will. Bring back the community to what it was before. That actually uh, introduces a certain element of a reform-mindedness in the society. Okay. There's always a sense of a consciousness that you know if something is not right, you can go back to the Quran and the Hadith and actually set it right. Now this is this is why I don't necessarily think Cape Town is in any way dif- different from others, or so- South Africa. South Africa is any way different. What you've had is that. From the 1960s or 1970s, as uh, students, particularly who have studied either in Cairo or they studied in Medina or who have studied in India, have come back to South Africa, they have challenged the what we call the traditional practices of their societies. Because traditional practices of societies have developed over 200 to 300 years. If you look at Cape Town, maybe a shorter. When you look at uh, you know other places in the in the country. And these practices have been questioned by these young students who come back and say, well, we're not, this is not what we're supposed to be doing. Now, they are not necessarily very experienced about understanding the society. And what has happened is that they, they sort of come up here and they say, no, no, we want to set things aright as such. But they also... Feel they, or there's also a desire on them to be accepted from the society. Yeah. So there's there's on the other hand they know that they need a place within the society. They in order for them to be an imam or in order for them to become a sheikh or a maulana they have to be play the role of what it used to be. I mean, because otherwise people will not recognize them, you yeah. know? If that. If they suddenly only speak about the problems, on the one hand, a desire to reform, mm-hmm. and on the other hand, a desire to be part of the society. There, there is this kind of constant pulling and tugging. Mm-hmm. So on the one hand, you want to say, no, you want to be so different. On the other hand, you can't reject everything that the society has done. So sometimes, even against their own uh, intention, they are somehow drawn into following the practices of the society. Mm-hmm they often study Salafism only when somebody does something yeah so if you have a debate I think it was in 2001 or so you know where uh, one of the sheikhs uh, said well you, 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 uh, you know it is shirk to visit uh, you know one of these kramats that you have in Cape Town okay. that is you know what it was th- this person said it I don't want to mention any names right now but they are in my article if you want to read it But That kind of a statement, you can actually come in the society and just read it for what it is and make your mind up about what Cape Town is. What we try to do is let us take the history of the individuals, let us look at the biography of these individuals. So we're not only looking at their engagement at a particular point in time, we're looking at how they have developed over a period of time. So we take somebody like um, uh, Sheikh uh, Tafir Najjar, I mean we mentioned him as such that if you only look at him when he, as soon as he came back from uh, yes. you know from cairo then you forget about the fact that he studied in medina then he went to cairo then he was here then he taught for a long period of time and then he made adjustments into into the tradition he began to think maybe you know some of the sufi practices are not so bad after yeah. all so i think that when you come in what we are what one of the points that we are saying is that don't under, don't understand a social phenomenon don't understand salafism only at one it, during it to around one event okay. but rather look at these individuals the people who are you know promoting this look at them over a period of time then you can see the phenomenon in its broader sense in its broader perspective and you won't make a too hasty judgement about individuals.
3: When it comes to the, obviously, the the previous disagreements between, you know, the perhaps the first wave of the disagreements, uh, we often found that it was based on the jurisprudence of the law of Islam, which, if you look at it from a holistic perspective, you know, having the tools of understanding the different madhabs and schools of thought, you know that it, it's easily dispelled. Sometimes just by saying that it's a mercy, follow you know, that school of thought, it doesn't change the fact whether you're Muslim or not. But nowadays uh, there are discourses of Islam uh, that are challenging the very question about whether that constitutes leaving Islam or not. Um, you have the groups called Salafism, and if we can just expand what this is uh, for the listeners, what Sufism is, what Salafism is, what are these, you know, interpretations of the very uh, essence of, of 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 theology within Islam? What is the belief behind that? Uh, and I think that offers a more dangerous,
2: you know, disagreement. I think that really goes to a particular strain of disagreement which has happened in, in the past in Islamic history um you know when groups come up and they challenge the very belief of another group and this is what we are seeing here now and this relates to the the, the most recent of such developments in the modern period let's let's call it the modern period 18th century is that yep. of uh, muhammad al wahhab who emerged as a <coughs> kind of a reformer as a mujadid but then who claim or who charged that those people who you know, who went to the the Sufi shrines or who went to visit the graves in a particular way or something like that, that they no longer are Muslim. So he made takfir, what we call takfir on them. And that idea has continued among people who are coming particularly, not everybody who studies in Saudi Arabia, but particularly people who study in Usuluddin. Yeah, And when they study this type of theology, they think that, they they, they argue that if you, if you basically even go to a, a grave of somebody and you uh, are somehow sit you know even if your intention is not like that that you are somehow compromising your faith or compromising your you're compromising the understanding of tawhid and the, and it is that idea that actually begins to debate like you said not only on issues of sharia or issues on fiqh as such but issues on aqida <laughs> and generally, the, the uh, most of the Muslims, particularly the Ahl Sunnah al-Jama'id, traditionally said that, look, when it comes to um, you know, matters of belief, uh, we have disagreements, but we basically will limit ourselves to not declaring another person kafir. We basically say that we have a better <coughs> belief, but we don't necessarily think that you are outside the tradition. And I think that from, uh, particularly coming out from Saudi Arabia, their understanding of Tawheed, particularly the oneness of God has gone I think to an extreme degree to the extent that they for example they would say and you can read that from many of the books for example that when you once you accept Islam you have to also accept the laws of Islam now for some reason or the other that if you feel that a law in this case is uh, you know it doesn't come directly from islam or that you think that you know for some reason or the other that you will think that maybe the law needs to be changed or it needs to be developed that means they will declare that you are rejecting the law of god that means you are making shirk. Sure yeah you are taking the south african government as a partner to allah associating partners with Allah, because it doesn't give any scope to an understanding of how the sharia Maybe interpreted from one place to another, there has been different interpretations there are different conditions that give mm-hmm. so they don 't give any kind of a, a, they just simply impute that they just simply suggest that well if you don't, if you accept another law, that means you are taking that person as an illah as a god, and therefore you are you a kafir basically that kind of an argument stops any discussion because mm-hmm. now you cannot talk with somebody else because he is you don 't consider him or her another Muslim anymore yeah. I must, though, add that not everybody who is a Salafi actually follows that position. But it is a trend that it, that has been promoted in in the various books of the of the Saudi uh, Saudi Saudi government. The Saudi government has been promoting. If you look at the um, uh, the books of Kitab al-Tawhid of uh, Muhammad Ibn Abdul Wahab, it's very clear there it doesn't leave any kind of compromise on yep. what is the under- meaning of belief, what is the understanding of you know of the Sharia as such. And I think that has created Two clear boundaries between people who are here, uh, people who are Muslims, and those who are not, and in many cases, in extreme cases like ISIS, what it leads to is that the uh, takfir of the whole of the Muslim ummah.
3: Now it's been a couple of years since you know uh, a number of those people have been you know integrated within society and. One of the points that was made in, in the articles by yourself as well as Dr. Yunus Dumbe was that it wasn't initially a Salafi movement, mm-hmm. but it was the spread of ideas and, and you know, gradually bringing people into that. But now we see a number of institutions coming who are explicitly known as Salafi institutions and they are proud about that, you know, because of the definition of Salafism meaning, let's go back to that first three generations, let's purify Islam from what they call the new Jahili period. Would you say it's now a movement and it's much more effective now than it was perhaps 20 or 30 years ago?
2: I don't think in South Africa it is yet a movement. I don't see it um, because they have not they have been able to establish themselves. And that is, you know, I may be wrong about that, so I'm hoping that people will correct me on this one. But from what I've seen, I mean, you can see uh, individual teachers or individual groups as such. And if you look in uh, places like, uh, you know, Zanzibar or you look at other East African countries, you can speak about the youth movement. <laughs> I think the the Saudi government has tried to establish a movement here, but they have not succeeded. And part of the reason for that is the fact that Muslim Muslim societies in South Africa... I mean we have a lot of ideas of Salafism, yeah, but yeah. we don't necessarily still have a movement. And the movements are in the background, they operate on Facebook for example, they operate in small little corners here and yeah. there, they sometimes make statements, they even recruit people who join, who went to ISIS, but they are not necessarily, yet, yet we cannot speak about them as a big movement, and that has, it is partly to do with the establishment of Muslim societies in South Africa across yeah. the breadth. There isn't really a, a need, a dependency on Saudi money. So when you look at other many okay. other countries for example Saudi so the Saudi government pours a lot of money in the in the country and then gets support I'll give you a good example of that in um, in Johannesburg because the Saudis put it, the Saudi government put a lot of money in the building of a mosque in Houghton mm-hmm. and that is often how in many other countries they basically start so they will establish a masjid and then when, as soon as they finished the building of the mosque or at least it came towards the end of the mosque they decided okay they want to step. They want to appoint an imam, and they and the local community said, "No, no, we don't appoint an imam. We'll appoint imam." And the Kauri then government decided to withdraw. Now, I think that. I'm just giving one simple example, but if you look at many places as such, what happens is that the Saudis do support people and then they establish a movement. Once that catapults into a larger group, for example, then you basically have a lot of disruption in the society.
3: What has been that unwillingness to compromise to have the Salafi movement in Cape Town, you know, uh, from the Muslim community, and what role has the various Sufi movements, you know, different Taruk, played? Uh, in maintaining that traditional understanding and practice of Islam in Cape Town. Mm.
2: Yeah, I think that's quite important. I mean, South, South Africa, and particularly Cape Town, is quite unique. And not only the Sufi groups, but also one could mention um, a number of uh, people who have been aware of the of these of of the of what such a movement can actually do to the fabric of the society. It can actually mm-hmm. be very disruptive in the society. If you suddenly start having people declaring others non-Muslim a kafir, or such, I mean, it could completely destroy the not only the fabric of the Muslim communities, but it could also threaten the fabric of the society of the city itself. I mean, all we need to do is just look at what happens in Pakistan, what happens in some countries. Yep. so you can see the potential of that. But I think there has been two developments, two two ways in which this has been this has been developed, and that is that various people in South Africa have called upon uh muslims to actually hold on to the local traditions there's a long local traditions and this is we, we uh, there are various uh while the salafis have been coming in and trying to gain f- a foothold there have also been movements of sufi 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 reform movements we, we can also call them sufi reform movements from around the 1990s at the same time and they have sort of uh, 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 used uh, they have basically as, uh, emphasized the fact that the communities at least the practices in in cape town are not necessarily against islam but they are part of a longer sufi tradition so that that response particularly from somebody like shiraj uh, such, has actually you know uh, reinforced that tradition mm-hmm. other people like uh, imam rashid umar, rashid umar from climate mine run have actually emphasized the cultural traditions in cape town mm-hmm. even though the cultural traditions i think in a way you know are sort of uh, dwindling because of the you know because of the change in the society but various people have actually emphasized that so i think that has been the resistance but i think one should also recognize that what is it that you know gains support why is it that salafism um, you know gets support not on the one hand, like i mentioned part of it has to do with the with the with the fact that there is a lot of financial support or you know social and political support from saudi arabia but also, Salafism also appeals to a very strong individualism within, within Islamic tradition. Yes. Because to be a Salafi means you don't follow anybody else. Okay. And so to be a Salafi means that I'm only going to read the Quran myself, the Hadith myself. I don't necessarily need to be part of the community, part of the society. Now, that is something that keeps on coming, and it, it, is, it does appeal to a kind of a modern society. And there's a bit of a contradiction there. On the one hand, you seem to be going back to the old tradition. Mm. On the other hand, as people like Olivier Roy in uh, uh, in France and others have emphasized, that Salafism actually represents a very individualistic <coughs> tradition, a tradition that has got nothing to do with the society. And I think that perhaps is also a counter-argument against uh, Salafis in Cape Town, because Cape Town Muslims are very very tied up to the community to the yeah. idea of the society as a minority we want to stay together we want to practice together and if you just simply decide okay i'm just going to do my own thing you can, it can happen i mean you can do that because we are living in a modern society but the history of islam as a minority is the one that supports communities and yeah. doesn't necessarily support individualism mm. so i think that's also a, a, an area that needs to be that needs to be addressed.
3: Wow. we'll be right back stay tuned after this Live from Cape Town. This is the voice of the Cape. The voice of the Cape. The voice of the Cape. Sir alaikum and welcome back to Burning Issue. We now listen to an interview pre-recorded with local uh, prominent scholar Sheikh Fakhrin owaisi the head of department of Islamic Studies at IPSA as well as a senior lecturer at the Medina Institute. Take a listen. We have a number of institutions, Muslim institutions in the world, and uh, it's always been seen where people send their children, uh, students to the Middle East and Saudi Arabia, in particular as well as Egypt, to these institutions. And uh, historically, when they came back, there were many disagreements which resulted from the portrayal of that. Uh, in education
4: itself, uh, it's uh, absolutely natural for students mm-hmm. who study at any particular institute, locally, nationally, or internationally, to be influenced uh, by the ideology of that institute uh, and its teachers, its founders, so uh, and obviously to uh, promote that afterwards uh, you know wherever they go to Mm -hmm. so that's something natural that people who study in any institute in the world uh, or even locally that they would imbibe those ideas and ideologies and then uh, promote it because that's what they've been taught and that's what they believe to be correct obviously those people who went to study in uh, India for example would come back with uh, a version of Islam and understanding of Islam that's based on an Indian context an Indian uh, uh, scenario mm-hmm. uh, also that also depending on which school of thought uh, uh, you know uh, the school you went to in India also belonged to Because also in India you might find India and Pakistan not all of them agree on everything yes uh, so uh, you, you'll come back with that type of understanding of Islam that was based on an Indian Pakistani context mm-hmm. right Uh, If somebody went to study in Egypt, for example, uh, again, they'll be influenced by uh, a very Egyptian understanding of Islam, uh, which is also not one, because even within Egypt there are different trends, you know. Mm -hmm. Uh, There would be the Ikhwan al-Muslimin, there would be uh, the traditional Azhari trend, uh, there would also be some Salafism, uh, you know, in Egypt uh tasawuf you know tariqas you know so you find different people coming back with different trends in, in historically in cape town for example we have some we had somebody like the marhum Sheikh saleh Deen who went to study in egypt uh, but he, he came back with a very tasawuf uh, orientated understanding and uh, tariqa because that's what he found in egypt uh, while you had somebody like the marhum Sheikh shakir khamildin who studied under a very uh Kind of modernist, uh, you know, uh, if you may use the term, Mu'tazila, uh, you know, uh, understanding of Islam, which was dominant in Egypt at the in the, at that time in the 1930s and 40s.
3: Now, having grown up in Saudi Arabia, you uh-huh. know, and having yeah. stayed there for uh, many years, yeah. um, how has your experience been with uh, the
4: ulama itself? Uh, well, yeah, I, I was yes, you know, I grew up eight eighteen years in Saudi Arabia so uh, well, uh, look uh, Saudi Arabia as I mentioned you know the religious establishment there the official one uh, you know is dominated by the Wahhabi Salafi ideology in fact not dominated but completely controlled yes. by that school of thought but uh, that doesn't mean that they are the only ones there Saudi Arabia traditionally uh, has had many Mazhab. but uh, since the last uh, 60 years of course the Wahhabi ideology dominates. Uh, with regards to uh, you know the political climate there, uh, yes, how do the ulama deal with the political circumstances there? Well, by and large, uh, like in most countries, uh, you know the ulama are basically uh, they go with the policy of the government. You mm-hmm. know, uh, and uh, we don't have much instances of ulama speaking out against the government. Uh but you do find that trend as well. It is nowadays uh, referred to as the Ikhwani trend. Yes. So you, you do find some ulama critical of the government, but that also depends how critical. There are those who are critical of the system that's from within the system. Yes. So they're not against the system, but they call for reforms and they call for change, uh and that is more. Yes, but and then there are those who are completely against yeah. the government and subserv, you know, subservice uh, and uh, th- that is a bit of the problematic ones and mm-hmm. some of those people are in jail as well.
3: You know, how it affects us in Cape Town, you know, people send the, 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 the children or the students uh, to the university there and uh, when they come back, does it mean that they will be intertwined with the political agenda? When you study at university in Saudi Arabia, um, is one of the consequences, you know, being automatically connected with their political agenda
4: well not necessarily uh if you're if obviously if you are a saudi and uh, you live in saudi arabia you know i mean uh, you have to toe the government's line and you your sympathy obviously is with your own government you know uh, as opposed to a foreign state you know but as for foreigners who study in saudi universities are they required to follow saudi foreign policy or saudi politics and everything no they're not even Saudi Arabia doesn't necessarily expect that you know from every graduate of the universities that they have to be supporting Saudi Arabia in everything Mm -hmm. you know Uh, that's their personal choice if they feel Saudi Arabia is doing the right thing uh, then they should support them if they feel that Saudi Arabia is not doing the right thing that they don't have to support them Uh, so there's no obligation you know uh, on anyone who studied anywhere to support that it doesn't mean if you studied in the Azhar uh, you have to support the Egyptian government in everything. Or if you studied in uh, the USA, you have to support the American government in everything. Yes. Uh, that that that's a personal choice that you have to make based on you know what is right and what is wrong, uh, according to your understanding of events. People Who studied in Saudi universities and otherwise, uh, who have been influenced by Salafism, for example, have maybe promoted it here. Um, uh, by and large, uh, I feel that. Uh, Sal- the Salafi, Wahhabi impact on Cape Town is still very small you know, <laughs> it's still very small you know, it's uh, it's not big you know, it's it's uh, the Cape Muslims uh, you know, uh, are still strongly, uh, you know, Sunni, Shafi'i mm-hmm. you know, uh, with a lot of uh, still very attached to th- their, their tasawuf practices you know, uh, w- which has been the, the hallmark of Islam here for 350 years you know, Islam in the Cape has always been the opposite of what Salafis wanted to be, you know. Islam in the Cape has always been about uh, mauleds and asgar and duas and 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 you know uh, your your awliya and your, your ulama and and uh, very strongly connected to shafi mazhab and so uh, to try to uproot that as the Salafis want to do, it's going to be a very difficult job for them. Yeah, uh, and I don't see any benefit in it, anyways. Uh, but uh, with that said, you know, uh, the Salafism or Wahhabism has had an impact, you know. We do see nowadays in some masajid in the Cape, for example, you know, uh, uh, you know, the, the Imam for example not making a dua after salah, or yes. the, some masajid uh, maybe not, um, you know, uh, not giving a lot of importance to the Maulid program, Mawlid al-Nabi, or, you know, what they call Ru'an, the Nist al-Sha'ban, or Laylatul al or you find there are massages maybe where they used to be Thursday night azkar Ratibul haddad while it's not really happening anymore or mm. uh, you know or, or they do not don't recite in Allahu wa to Sal al nabi before the imam goes on the minbar. this is a small tiny issue, but it's, a, it's it shows you the the influence of the Wahhabi mentality uh, on our sunnah al jamaa so uh, you find some massages for example in the taraweeh uh, they don't. They're not making any azkar or what in Cape Town uh, in the Malay language is called the pujis. Yes. Between the, the you know they're just making the tarawih one way. Uh, so the, you you see these little things that you can clearly see the impact of the Wahhabi Salafi ideology on some people in the Cape. Uh, you know uh, the Salafis are very very hasty in calling the majority of the Muslims out there anybody who disagrees with them as a kafir, as a mushrik, uh, or as a people of Bidah. So I know of Salafis here in Cape Town uh, who will not shake hands with me, for example, you know. And, and with most my in Cape Town, okay. because they believe you are people of Bidah. I know of Salafis in Cape Town who will not perform Salah in any of the masjids in Cape Town. You Not even Jum'ah, because they consider all the imams to be mushrik and kafir and so on. So this type of ideology obviously leads to ISIS, yeah. uh, which then you just want to attack people and kill people and slander people. and So that's very extreme. Yeah. I disagree with the Salafis, but I don't consider them kafir. I do not consider them mushrik, I do not consider them uh, out of the fold of Islam or anything like that. In fact, if, if there is a masjid in the Jum'ah going on, if there is a Salafi leading the Salah, I will make the Jummah behind him. I, I don't, you know, take him out of Islam. I believe he has got some wrong ideas and wrong understandings of Islam, but he's still my Muslim brother. But unfortunately, most Salafis do not look at the rest of the ummah like that. And, and that is one of the bigger problems we have. More than the ideas mm-hmm. of Salafism, it is the methodology and approach an attitude that many Salafis, Wahhabis have with the rest of the Ummah.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, what, what is the solution, long-term solution? Because um, many a times people in the religious fraternity are are not willing to actually come to the forefront, to sit at the table and to discuss these issues uh, with Adab uh, al you know, or they just don't want to speak about it.
4: Yeah, other wali khutlah is important. Uh, you can have your opinion. You know, if you do, if you don't want to make the maulid and nabi, fine, don't make it. No problem. You know, it doesn't make you uh, take you out of the fold of Islam. But also respect the fact that the majority of ulama do honor the maulid and nabi and have always done so, and it's it's a valid opinion. You know, and you cannot force and stop other people from doing it or condemn them and attack them and mock them, and so on. So we need to, you know, uh, both parties need to uh, be respectful with each other. Uh, We don't need to have personal slanders against each other and get violent and rude with each other, you know. Uh, But uh, everybody has a right to express their opinion, but they should do it in a a respectful way.
3: That was your Fakhroun in OAC. We we emphasize that the views expressed on the show is not necessarily the views of the voice of the game management and staff.
1: Of the Cape, 91.3 FM stereo.
3: My radio station, your radio station, our radio
0: station, the Voice of the Cape. Live from Cape Town, this is the Voice of the Cape, the
3: Voice of the Cape, the Voice of the Cape. Assalamualaikum alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh and welcome back to the Burning Issue. The topic tonight, the allegiance of Cape Townian Muslims to Saudi Arabia's discourse of Islam and all Islamic universities, um, you know, providing religious education intertwined with their political agendas. Now, I, I must note that the discussion tonight on Burning Issue is, involves specific individuals on the specific topic. You know, it's not the broad topic about Salafism versus Sufism, but it is how this has influenced the community, the current, you know, different opinions and also the current condition, and also a pathway in order to bring unity now that's the spirit of islam that's what we need to go back to embrace the spirit of islam and this is what it's about and we have to know that the purpose is also to remove reductionism which is a major problem that we have we need to represent people correctly that is the ethic of islam to represent people correctly and we unite with you know the rahma and the mahabbah of islam but for now we listen to sheikh saad lakan the ceo of Islamic college and also the former imam of masjid al-quds in terms of its influence uh, the influence of, of the different discourses within islam uh, that uh, you know emerged um, throughout the centuries and culminating in the, in the 20th century uh, and how did that affect the narrative of the muslims in cape town when it when not not when it first started but in the
0: 20th century itself bismillah <laughs> yeah. I think it's important to know that throughout history, the political authority is very often determined, prevalent in the societies where our, where our students go and learn, and the political um, the discourse in that area, the political slant does impact how people uh, uh, see things. So you'll find, for example, a much more, um, for want of a better word, we are all Muslim. I mean, we are Wahhabi, Salafi, Sunni, Shiyang, if I'm concerned, they are Muslims, we differ amongst ourselves. However, you'll find a stronger brand of Salafi of Wahhabism, coming often from the Saudi graduates, not so much from Egyptian graduates. Though there may be some among them too. Then you get some of them who are Sufiistically inclined but coming from Medina. But is that the the strand of Islam being taught there? So there are political and religious influences. Uh, Religious because of the way some of our people are taught in a political environment where they come from. So sometimes they represent that kind of Islam. Uh, which, uh, which, uh, which becomes manifest in our societies.
3: Does that contribute to the uh, some of the you know um, opposition to some of the customs that we see in Cape Town um, in the idea that Salafism, mm-hmm. you know, as we know, we're trying to go back to the first three generations as as a concept, um, besides the movement that we've seen over the years, but does that can contribute to the to the Salafi idea of a reformation, a political idea of a reformation?
0: You see, what well, the problem with any of our schools of thought, yes. and may Allah bless everybody, whether the Wahhabi, whether the Salafi, whether the Shafi, whether with whether the Maliki may Allah bless all of them you know and may Allah forgive us all for our errors but what happens is the dominance of one the idea is mutually exclusive that we have we represent the true Islam now when you say for example back to the Quran and Sunnah it's a Salafi idea okay. it's the idea of Salaf and we all follow the Salaf but doesn't make me a Salafi yes. true Islam back to the Quran and Sunnah so where do you think the Sufis go to you may differ with the approach you approach or the the, the, the pretext with which you approach the text may differ They yes, yes, so invoke the same verses everyone goes back to the original is how we justify what we manifest today. So that's very, very important to understand. So I think yes There has been a tremendous impact and it's creating quite a bit of havoc in the sense that it's almost not only trying to purify something, it's also undermining what you've been doing, to say this is wrong. To understand that in South Africa, in Cape Town in particular, there were parts where Jum'ah was banned, Mm -hmm. where in public was banned, people got together to make zikr. I do know that those circumstances don't exist anymore. I do understand that. Mm -hmm. However, it was those practices which were not contrary to Islam. That you are going to Quran and Sunnah, others are not. What I'm saying, what is required is to realize that there has been an impact. How through the centuries, not only Salafism, Sufism itself. There were some positive influences, some negative influences. They were there. When they brought uh, Abu Bakr Effendi here, it causes split between Hanafi and Shafi. Mm-hmm. It was not because of Hanafi or Shafi school of thought. It was maybe a machinations of the imperialists at that time to split the Muslims. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I'm saying. But it's not because Hanafi is bad, or Shafi is bad, or Salafi is bad. But how it becomes dominant in manifesting itself as a mutually exclusive, os yes. as the as the deen. That I got a problem with. Now, in terms of, you know... You know, i um, uh, uniting
3: the Muslim community, because there is obviously uh, this divide within uh, certain institutions, within Cape Town, or in South Africa also. Um, do you find that it, um, there's a necessity to compromise on some of the um, essentials of a certain discourse of your Islam in order to bring together? Because people are unwilling to actually say, no, uh, we're not
0: going to stop this practice, you're saying, in order to come to the table. I think it's not a matter of compromise. You can't compromise on principles. But don't make something principle which is not a principle. For example, uh, some people make 8 rakas tarawih, some people make 20 rakahs I make 20 for that matter. Mm-hmm. But I'm saying, I can't make it a principle, if you make 20 rakas tarawih, you are, are undermining the sunnah with Sayyidina Umar instituted, and he says, no, Rasulullah yeah. made 8 rakas and that for three nights. Don't make things principle which are not principle. Yeah. In some mosques, you don't wear a cap, they don't let you lead the prayer. Some mosques, you lend, you know, your beard is not the length, they don't let you lead some prayer, for example. if
3: you don't stand up
0: for salawat, they have a that's a problem For example, the, yeah. the issue issue is not only tolerance, because tolerance, I can tolerate you and still hate you. Okay is appreciation yes I have an appreciation appreciation for these people's genuineness and in what they are doing if somebody makes 20 rakahs instead of 8 rakaat he's making 12 if you believe extra rakahs, it's Tiyamul layl for yeah. Allah mm-hmm. good he's making quran what else would you have done? Yeah. he may have gone watch TV or something so at least something good so he might think it's sunnah but actually may be actually enough it doesn't matter mm-hmm. now I should make it a sunnah mu'akidah now and argue that you don't do it you know your salah is batim and your, your fasting is in. this is the problem we overemphasize those issues issues which are not fundamental and those who say that look we should only focus on the fundamentals the way they approach their focus, in other words, anybody that's zikr, they are going out of the fold. You don't need to do this. You don't destroy and that's what you find right now what's happening with in the Middle East and so on. All the wars are fought in Muslim lands between Muslims. There's not a single war taking place at the moment in any other country except Muslim lands. Never mind whose hand is behind it, we are allowing ourselves to be used and then we get involved in Madai issues as if that's the issue. That's not the issue. If Saria if Saria is using chemical weapons which has not been proven by yes. the but if it is, Saddam Hussein used it not because he was Sunni, but because he was bad. Yeah. He used it on Kurdish Shafites. Not yeah. because he was a Sunni, yeah. or he was Hanafi, but because he's a bad leader. So, so now, what happens is that's played out. Can you see what the Shias are doing? Can you see what the Sunnis are doing? It almost becomes a religious discourse, which is not factual. And for people who are intelligent enough, and religious scholars should be able to distinguish. So is that the root cause of some people making takfir within Cape Town?
3: Uh, that it's not a religious thing, but it's something else. Motivated. It is a
0: political motivation, and it is yeah. overemphasis on minor differences. Okay. You don't overemphasize minor differences because we are we are weakened by our disunity and our enemies are strengthened by our division. There are fundamentals that we agree upon. Let's agree upon those. The secondary things we differ about, we will differ and continue to differ, but don't prioritize secondary difference over fundamental uh, uh, principles which we agree upon. Because if we do that, we become a fragmented community not of 1.5 billion Muslims, but of pockets of 100,000 here and there. And that is why our enemies can cause us to fight one another. In terms of communication, uh, in your personal capacity as well as,
3: you know, you're representing uh, the different institutions that you do as as a leader of the Muslim community in Cape
0: Town, have you sat down with people of different viewpoints or or are you willing to do so? Of course. Mm -hmm. It's our primary responsibility. But the important thing is, there will be no preconditions. One of the problems that we have in particular Cape Town, everyone calls for unity. But you know what they're calling for? Come and join us.
3: Yeah, conformity.
0: No one says, look here, let's go there. No, you come to us. This is the problem that we have. So the issue here is, is not so much the calling for unity. Mm -hmm. Everybody, I can guarantee you as this question, everyone will say the same thing. No, of course you want unity. What do you mean by unity? I'm saying, what are the fundamental principles? When you're talking about unity, we're talking about a cause greater than ourselves. Yes. We're talking also, must remember, Islam invites to the way, Allah doesn't call you to a point, He calls you to a path. And different people are at different points in that pathway. Mm-hmm. So perhaps we feel we are more right than others. There's a tendency, to, sometimes arrogance, uh, sometimes, I don't know, it's just a narrow-mindedness. But I think the people with a larger capacity, generosity of spirit, with a larger understanding, are generally more accommodating.
1: Yeah.
0: They also have the ability to acknowledge that people do have good intentions. Even if you do something wrong in the name of religion, for example, then you guide them, yeah. you advise them. You see, if somebody swears me on the phone consistently, I don't blow up the phone,
3: yeah.
0: I stop speaking. I don't condemn the phone as haram. Mm. T- TV has good programs and bad programs. TV in itself is not haram, it's what it shows on there that can be haram. I can switch it on and switch it off. What we tend to do now is to discard the entire thing, yeah. the entire legacy. Every culture thing we did. People, you know, they did the best they could, but they were misguided. No, they were not misguided. If they didn't do what they did, we wouldn't have had Islam today, yeah. by the permission of Allah that we have the Islam, but I mean, the efforts. So I think there needs to be an appreciation, a culture of appreciation. To realize that there are differing perspectives, that if there are clear-cut, distinct elements where people are saying things kufr, openly, acknowledged by the majority of scholars throughout history as kufr, then you can say these people out of the follow Islam. Other than that, withhold. Don't suddenly call people whom you call Muslim all the time, Kafir now, which you haven't called for 100, 200 years. Yeah. Suddenly now you do it. And then the timing of when you do it is linked to some events in the Middle East. Yeah. Look at the Madahib differences. Why is it picking right now? What has happened in the Madahib issues now that has become dominant? Suddenly Saudi Arabia attacks Yemen, we became involved in uh, embroiled. And then the other last point I want to make, we are very critical. Of what is being done by the Israelis, destroying sites. How many sites have been destroyed by ISIS? Where is the outcry? Yeah. The blowing up of mosques, the blowing up of the Yun- uh, Masjid where he was buried, hmm. the Makkah. All these factual things are on websites yeah. of the Muslims. CNN news reports. Yeah. So we know these things have happened. Where is outcry? Yeah. When the Zionists destroy one mosque, we protest, which we should. Hundreds of places have been destroyed. Yeah. So the legacy is gone. When you remove the legacy, you remove the historical reality. I don't say if people go there and do wrong things, rest them, stop them, ban them if you have to. You don't blow up the place. Okay. And the last point is this, I think is very important for us to reflect upon the fact that we need to have a degree of sympathy. <inaudible> if any Muslim gets hurt, even the Shul's last us spoke about an animal getting hurt. About a woman saved from the hellfire because she uh, gave water to an animal. Yeah. To an animal. And she was a sinful woman and because of the act of mercy towards not a human being or a non-human being, to an animal. I mean, to, uh, not a uh, Muslim or non-Muslim, to a non-human being. And Allah granted her Jannah. Where is that compassion? Where is that sunnah in dealing with people like ourselves? And finally, we come from a culture where we know Christians have an element of shirk in their belief. Yeah. Yet we call them al-kitab. The Jews—they don't have elements of shirk in their belief—but we differ with them though our laws of um, of of of, uh, of slaughter and sacrifice, and some of the values are similar because of similar background of the legacy of musa alayhi salam. But the point I'm making is, we differ. Yet we call them al-kitab. How come we can have that kind of approach to people with elements of shirk in their belief, in our own we call people kafir on the basis of bidah? Something is seriously wrong here. So we need to take a look at how we pass judgment why we say what we say how we say it and to look at the sincerity with which we say what we are saying so i i say yes i'm more than willing with any people Mm -hmm. to be able to work with with anybody Muslim or non Muslim, for the sake of is righteousness and lead to Allah consciousness. So, this is my view. If that does not happen,
3: if uh, unity does not occur with everyone coming to the table, what do you see the future of Islamic Islam in Cape Town to be?
0: Then, each one on their own, wherever they are, because they are sincere. Yes. To look into the heart and see what they can manifest of Islam as beauty. Mm-hmm. show the beauty even if you are Salafi if you are Sufi you are Jafari or Zaydi or Hanbali or whatever you call yourself yeah. because call yourself Muslim first begin with that when somebody asks you who you are I am Muslim begin with that end with that Okay, whether you're Salami and you're a Hanafi or whatever, Deobandi, that's your own thing. When anybody asks you, what are you? I'm a Muslim. What is Yasin? He's a Muslim. Mm-hmm. I don't say he's a Salafi Muslim or he's a Sufi Muslim. Once we do that, the bond of brotherhood will emerge. Yes. And you know what? The errors that I make, you may be able because you love me, because I care for you, you care for me. I'll see your life because you didn't out love, mm-hmm. not because you're discounting me, attacking me from your member, and you haven't seen me before in your life. Yeah. You rather love me and say, look here, Saadhu has but deviating. Let me speak to him. he's a good guy. He's my brother. He loves me. I love him. Yeah. For the sake of Allah, he'll see my love. Mm. We don't see that. We we live in a world that yes we love, and we see a world where the impression of our religion is one of violence and one of hatred. Is the very antithesis of Islam
3: alaikum. That was a package by Sheikh Sadlaq. This is bringing people together so that we can promote peace, discussion, and also the removal of reductionism, which is when you hear one point from someone who disagrees with you and you harbour on that. That is actually a cancer that prevents further discussion. If you have a you know a very uh, strong belief that someone is kafir, let's think about. What the, that there's a difference of opinion within the community, and we we are discussing all all of the various opinions. But after the break, we'll be talking to Sheikh Mohammed West, who lived in Saudi Arabia and also studied at the Medina University.
2: Live from Cape
3: Town, this is the Voice of the Cape. The Voice of the Cape. The Voice of the Cape. assalamualaikum Welcome back to Burning Issue. And now, take a listen to the interview with Sheikh Mohammed West, the imam at the Burhanul Islam Masjid, as well as a graduate from the Medina University. Uh, representing custodians of of the the, the two uh, sanctuaries of, of Mecca and Medina, the Haram of Mecca and obviously the al Nabawi, how do we view our connection, you know, and our allegiance to Saudi Arabia as our representative, you know, amidst all of this political um, issues that are currently happening?
1: Uh, this question about uh, the disunity and the uh, differences that we find in the ummah, we know it's a big problem. We know both locally um in our whole tiny community, and then globally, it's, it's a major problem the ummah is faced with, and it seems to be uh, getting worse and worse to the point where we know uh, war and violence is being fought in virtually every Muslim land, between Muslims, Muslim against Muslim, uh, and we've gone so far away from the Quran, and a big part of that is links back with political differences. And uh, before we actually get into the, the, the details, I must mention that really the beginning of the splintering of the ummah began from political differences. The first sect. To emerge the khawarij was a political sect initially and then transformed into a theological sect the first the, the shia sunni split the origins of it was a political uh, issue that eventually became a theological issue so politics and the issue of political um uh differences of, of, of views politically has always been a flashpoint of 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 contention that eventually becomes very serious and very dangerous and is perhaps the most controversial area um, that one can talk about. And there will be strong opinions as you listen to this, 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 this interviews. You have strong opinions in favor, strong opinions against. Uh, and we should not become uh, angry or upset or disunited on that, but it's, it's, it's something to be discussed. There's no one answer, no one solution for all these issues, but it's just to discuss and to, to get clarity. I mean, subhanAllah, we look at the Sahaba, Sayyidina Aslan, he was killed because a political group disagreed bes- with him, Sayyidina Ali, uh, Hussein radiallahu anh. So if these great, great personalities were not spared um, from uh, uh, you know incorrect political views, then subhanAllah, you know, us 1,500 years later, uh, we're so much, even so much more uh, in, the, in the in the fighting line than that. So we think into this area with a great deal of caution, but it is a controversial issue, and everyone... We all have our political views. Uh, we have these strong opinions, and that's we, uh, you know, because we, we, we can become passionate. And that's when uh, maybe the, you know, that's when the differences actually can become violent and we can become dangerous. So we, we enter this area with that kind of understanding. When we have this discussion as to Saudi Arabia itself and the current political uh, landscape that we find ourselves in, firstly, no country, no. Um, alim, no movement, no group, no institution can lay claim to Islam. Islam is bigger than all of us. Islam, the only one that can represent Islam is the Quran of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the Sunnah of the Prophet Only the Prophet can we point to him and say, if you want to see Islam, that's Islam. Look at what the Prophet says and does, that is Islam. What I do, what Sheikh so-and-so does, what the MJC does, what Saudi Arabia does, we are all just part of this ummah. Sometimes we are in line with the Ummah. Sometimes we are out of line with the Ummah. We don't represent Islam. None of us can be the custodians and the uh, the representatives of this being. It's beyond us. We will come. Islam always remains. It's it's the universal religion. The sun, the moon, all of all of that is part of Islam. The obedience of Allah Subhanahu Wa Taala. So Saudi Arabia, they have a very important position in our Ummah, being that they are the custodians of of Mecca and Medina it is Qibla, it is the place we will turn to for Hajj uh, and Allah has given them a great responsibility. Uh, but having said that, they do not hold a position where they, they are the, the leaders of this Ummah. And I don't think fairly to say, they don't claim that either. They, don't, they have not made the claim that, that they are the, the custodians of Islam, custodians of the, the haramain. yes, yes indeed. Um, but the Quraysh. Who were the non Muslims in the time of the Prophet? They were the custodians of the Kaaba as well. So we don't uh, equate custodianship of the Haramain as leadership um, or representatives of the deen. There is an expectation, of course, from the Muslim Ummah that those who are looking after the holy sites should play a greater degree of leadership. And similarly, you look at the Imam. We don't say that Imam needs to fix all the problems of the community. We don't say he's the representative of, of Islam, but we expect from him to play a greater deal, uh, a, great, a greater uh, um, a position in, the, in, in fixing problems. And we would love to see our Muslim countries, and Saudi Arabia in particular, playing a leadership for the Ummah to, be, uh, uh, to, to, to represent us in a good manner. Um, but I don't think Saudi Arabia, you know. They take that position as our representatives. And I don't think they even lay claim to that. They don't say we are the custodians of Islam. They don't, they don't put themselves in that position. And they've got their own um, political agenda, their own sovereign issues that they deal with, which is, you know, for us to be naive to think that their they, uh, um, policies are based on the bitumen of Ummah. That's obviously not the case. We all know that. And uh, if you have that uh, idea, you'll be really disappointed if you expect to go to Saudi Arabia for the first time. You're going to expect the grandkids of the Sahaba Living the way of the Sahaba That's not, that's not what you're going to find, unfortunately
3: In terms of the religious education stuff, You yourself have studied in, in, in Saudi Arabia um, you, you, You've you lived there for, for quite a while as well um, In terms of the... the um, the, the, the discourse, and we, we, we do recognize that oftentimes there are disagreements within the ideological framework of, of the, what the discourse of Islam is, and, and you know disagreements on, on sometimes fundamental issues. When it comes to the influence of Saudi Arabian institutions, and we know we can say the same thing with regards to any institution, uh, you know, the discourse, and we often hear the labels, you know, Salafi and Sufi, how has that, in your experience, impacted not only your vision, but also the vision of Cape Town as a whole, in, in your estimation?
1: Yes. Um, the, you know, there's a much bigger issue in terms of perhaps uh, the political views of, of a government or the, the views of the government versus the independence of the ulama and the ulama themselves, their own views and, and, and the products that the students have, the products of the institution. Um, it's, it's just natural that those, what, whichever institution you study, not only in the Islamic context, you study at UCT, you study at Salam Bash, um, you would have an affinity with that institution. I mean, this is where you, your, your alma mater is where you came from. You will have a great deal of respect for your teachers. Um, you know, we can never get away from our own personal bias, our own personal upbringing and our personal views. And every institution will have their views. Every institution will um, take a certain stance on certain issues. And and, and the students that come from there would, would lean to it. If either, either they'll fully endorse it and they would go on to their own communities and teach that, or they would lean to it or sympathize with it in a certain degree. Myself, being a, a, a product of the, uh, the Islamic University of Medina, I'm very grateful for having the opportunity, some of the best years of my life, to spend there, um, being able to learn from some of the greatest minds in the world, uh, recognized globally as some of the best minds in the world um, in, in the field of, of Islamic studies. Um, you know, you, you, you are very grateful for that. And alhamdulillah, I mean, I can maybe talk a little bit about uh, the culture of the Islamic University of Medina. Anyone that has studied there or is studying there will tell you, um, you know what it's like. Uh, there is always this uh, view, and I, I've heard it before. I went to Medina while I was there. After I was there, and there's this fear that you get indoctrinated, almost, that you will be forced to an ideology. And it's gonna you know you'd lose your objectivity uh, that's not that's not that's not the case I would say any more than so any other university I, I was fortunate to study at u c t as well at the at, at un UNISA, at Unisa as well so i have been to a few universities uh, in my uh, in my short life so far and I would say the Islamic University of Medina no different to to any other institution yes definitely they draw the line in the sand and they've got certain opinions they will opinions and these opinions and these discourses, especially when you talk about the Islamic discourses here, it goes beyond Saudi Arabia. Saudi Arabia, just fact, just a hundred years old. These debates, Salafi, Sufi, Sunni, Shi'i, um, Ash'ari, Maturidi, Asari, all these different uh, issues, the madhab issues, go well beyond, you know, just the beginning of Saudi yeah. Arabia and the scholars of the Islamic University of Medina and the scholars of Saudi Arabia They've taken a position uh, on certain issues. And, uh, you know, the students naturally will will levitate towards their teachers. But I must say what I do appreciate uh, as a methodology of the teaching, it's a methodology of uh, of Dalil. It's a Dalil-based study. That one of the first lessons you've learned is to be critical, to think about it in terms of the context of Quran and Sunnah, that if you've got an opinion, it has to be substantiated with ayat of the Quran, or the sunnah of the Prophet or the teachings of the great scholars of the past. Um, and in the absence of evidence, then, you know, that those opinions we can put to to one side um, for the time being. Uh, and then, of course, they do make their own ijtihad, and they make their own uh, reasoning. And I, and I think sometimes one needs to, to, go, be, you know, to go beyond you respect, your teachers, you respect your understanding, but also in the context when you come back to your own community, the application of that might be different. Um, Cape Town, to Johannesburg, to America, to Saudi Arabia. You have a teacher that teaches you about Dawah, but he's never left Saudi Arabia. He's never really enc- encountered non-Muslims. You, you, you take his teachings with a pinch of salt. You take what you understand from him, but know the knowledge doesn't end with him. And I think that's the maturity of, I'd say, not just students from Saudi Arabia, but students in general. If you study medicine, you finish studying this, but you need to go through a process of you know, the practical learning you would learn a lot about books and opinions in in the university, in Al-Azhar, in Medina, in Dioband. but you won't learn about people. And only through working in the community will you understand the nuances of your community and your people. And I think that's something that's lacking generally. And one of the bigger problems as we face with the Ummah, remember extremism is not linked to one group not just the Salafis or the Saudis that are extreme. You get extreme Sufis, you get extreme Shias, you get extreme whatever it might be, modernists, whatever group it is, there's extremism, there's intolerance, all around atheists, extreme atheists. So it's a, a culture of of being partisan and a culture of being intolerant that is throughout these organizations and institutions. And I think uh, the problem is, is, is widespread. And the only way to really address it is through understanding and working collaboratively um, with different groups.
3: When it comes to you know the need for a reformation of of Islam because if you if you look at the history of of Islam, we had many disagreements based on jurisprudence. For example, when um Bakri Fendi came to Cape Town, there was disagreements between you know certain issues relating to you know Hanafi opinions and certain things and Shafi'i opinions and other things. But now it's it's come more to the disagreements on an of, of of the issue of what is called takfir. And if you just elaborate on that? And 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 also why? why are you know um, discourses within south Africa um, calling for a reformation of islam and and if someone doesn't conform to the understanding of a reformation means uh, they will label label the other person you know as a, non, a non-believer or a kafir?
1: yeah I, I think just again in the context your question in the context of of of, of, of Madin and I speak specifically about Saudi Arabia um you get to you, you, you need to learn as you go through a process about what issues are, are, are minor and what are major issues. What issues are we can accept. There are different types of differences and there are different reasons why we could differ. We could differ if it comes down to a dunya difference. So it's, what's happening between Qatar and the rest of its neighbors is a purely political, economic reasons. And this is obviously haram. And we say that uh, Allah speaks about two people that fight and quarrel over uh, dunya You should, should put this aside and they have 30 days to really do so. When it comes to religious differences, and um, we should understand that not all the differences are the same. In fact, there's a beautiful uh, hadith of the Prophet that says that Allah has left things unsaid Not because he forgot about it, but because Allah has allowed different kinds, you know, different leeway in how you should practice. You know, the classic example, Bani Israel, Allah says slaughter a cow. Whichever cow they chose, they have been fine. But the minute they asked more and more and more, it became more specific and it became only this specific cow. is the only way to do it. So Allah leaves things unmentioned so that we have multiple opinions. And this is the beauty of our deen always going to have different views and it's going to be debated. We don't want a situation where we have a, you know, a, a clergy one view that dominates all kinds of opinions and in, influences things. So, Alhamdulillah, Islam, you know, it, we, we are glad that we have these differences. Uh, as you mentioned, thick issues, we shouldn't be fighting about thick issues. You can follow any madhab, it's fine. You can follow... Uh, you know, uh, you can go beyond your madhab and, 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 and go further to, to the level of ijtihad. That's also fine. You can go to a certain institution. You come with a Hanafi, it's normal. The Saudi institution favors the Hanbali view, but they also favor, uh, you know, different opinions. But yes, the issue of aqeedah differences, and this word aqeedah is used around a lot, and people don't understand what is aqeida. There are certain fundamental issues that are non-negotiable, where we can't agree to disagree. So we can say, for for example, um, you know, touching a woman breaks your wudu Shafi view is one side Hanafi is the different side we agree to disagree Both sides have uh, equally strong opinions and evidence Whichever way is fine But certain other issues we can't agree to disagree Certain things are very, very serious And again, you can have you know major differences with your neighbor You could be a Christian neighbor Major differences But you're still able to get along and live together amicably And have a level of respect We've lost that with people that we differ on major, major issues. These aqida issues are not going to go away. They've been there. They're going to be there. No one is. There's no scholar that's going to come and solve these issues. You're going to take an opinion, and there's nothing wrong with having an opinion. It's how you interact with those who differ with you, how you propagate those opinions, putting things in context. Um, you know, we can discuss all day. You know, if Allah subhanahu wa taala. Is upon his throne in a physical sense, or is the metaphorical sense Does he descend in a physical sense, metaphorical sense? Understand, the theological. The sense has a place and time for that debate. It should not split our masjid up. You know that, that goes beyond the the, the the concept. You know you've gone beyond the, the, what was expected of us, and you, you've totally missed the mark. If that's going to become an issue, which would def- disunite our community, so takfir is something which. I can safely say that Al-Azhar, the Islamic University of Medina, within India, everyone is against takfir. Everyone totally disagrees that we do not declare anyone who says la ilaha a No matter what they do, what they believe, that's between them and Allah. And the fact that we find so many people using this K-word, this is a dangerous K-word, it's one of the big reasons why the blood has become halal, or why people are bombing, killing one another. It's 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 a scourge on this ummah. And... This is one word you should never ever really use. This is something which is a mighty issue which a judge, you know, specific issue must, must declare, must pass a ruling. And it's not like lightly. Never ever should you use the word takfir. You never declare anyone kafir. You never pass a fatwa on anyone kafir. Leave that to the greatness of scholars because they will have to answer to Allah for that, for that decision. Don't put yourself in a position Allah, Allah is going to question you on that. Allah is going to ask you how many people did you make kafir? how many people do you bring to the deen? So, takfir, alhamdulillah, it's, it's it, from my teachings, from my, my teachers, from when I began to when I graduated, even if we differ on major issues, on theological issues, you don't decree someone who says the kalima, who believes in the Qur'an, who loves the Prophet ﷺ, who faces the same qibla, such a person, if he calls himself a believer, that's between me and Allah, there's no way you can declaim kafir.
3: Just in conclusion, um, with regards to the issue of of, of unity, um, oftentimes um, when people say, you know, we need to be united, um, what they mean, and I'm not, you know, obviously accusing anyone of that um, specifically, but what they mean is uh, we'll be united as long as the other group conforms to my view of things. Um, what do you say about that? How do we prevent that from happening? And also if you can provide practical steps, you know, of unity within the Muslim community uh, and, and, my, and just as a conclusion my final question is uh, Would you personally uh, as a leader of the community uh, in in Cape Town, Cape Town Muslim community um, Would you be willing to sit at the ta- at a table with people of differing views and actually discuss
1: this? Differences are inevitable. We can have different views and these views um, like I said they go beyond that. There will always be a split between Salafi and Sufi issues and bid'ah. It's a bid'ah, not. It's an issue of, of definition. What is a bid'ah? What's not a bid'ah? Issues of, of, um, of madhhabs. They're going to be there long after we've passed away. But what does it mean? Does it mean we can't call the madhhabs, we can't all the different opinions and we you know, force free the one view? No, definitely not. We are entitled to hold our views, but it should be informed, it should be based on understanding. Uh, and I think that's one of the first first steps. Today we have access to so much information. We, you know, at a very young age or very uninformed uh, 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 way, we can get access to issues of takfir. We can get access to the most controversial of our actors in the past. You have to have studied books and get a long way before you got to that level. And by that time, you've maybe had, uh, you know, some background and some understanding. Today you can click a YouTube video and you don't even know... Uh, the basics of the deen, but you're already discussing issues of vidah and takfir, and, and, and that that's so dangerous when you're putting a weapon in a person's hand that doesn't understand
3: Absolutely. The, the
1: ABCs of, of, of Islam. And I usually say this if you can't name all the wives of the Prophet if you cannot explain all the pillars of islam and the pillars of iman you can't explain the pillars of salah or how to perform wudu you shouldn't be discussing the issues of bidah and Takfir and the political issues these are massive major issues which the greatest scholars are struggling with if you haven't gone beyond those basic discussions then you shouldn't be involved in those more more controversial areas but that's one of the reasons why we have problems Everyone has an opinion about bid'ah. everyone has an opinion about Sunni and Shia, everyone has an opinion on, on X, Y, Z, but then let not know the base, that's one problem. The second thing is, um, you know, being partisan, being, uh, you know, playing ball. You, you, you can only get beyond your own views when you meet with people. And i talk about people, but talk to people. It's really important you sit around the table, discuss issues respectfully, get to know one another, beyond our differences. We to know what is the man's view on the, the cricket team, what is the man's views on, on, you know, day-to-day stuff, get to know the person. And I think we do this so well with our Christian neighbors and friends. We know Mr. So-and-so, the neighbor, he's a good man in all other areas, but I don't take his trinity and I don't take his he's, he's, he's religious beliefs. I can put that to one side and I, I disagree with him, but I work nicely with him we can when it comes to, issues which affects all of us, the neighborhood, our kids, the school. We work side by side. I don't know why we can't do that as Muslims. It comes down to not having that maturity. And I think it's really important for scholars of different views to sit around the table and discuss things, perhaps not, not in the forum of, 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 of public forum, it's to know one another on a personal level before you start disagreeing with one another. That's, that's one of the areas where we also uh, struggle with. And I can say... Um, Alhamdulillah, the imam of Burani, islam, before I actually became the imam there, uh, how I got in touch with the masjid was that the Qur'an islam there had this policy with, a, with this program called the Emerging Ulema Conference, where they took students from Al-Azhar, students from Medina, students from India, local students, put them, you know, for a camp a couple of days, You shared room with someone that you knew study with, so we got to know one another as friends, played soccer together. And that friendship continues even though you differ with one another on theological issues. Alhamdulillah, those friends of mine are put by my friends. So I think
3: that's one of the areas of the Muslim. That was Shia West, a graduate from the Medina University, as well as the Imam of the Ruhan Islam Masjid. Stay tuned after the break.
0: Live from Cape Town, this is the voice of the Cape. The voice of the Cape. The
3: voice of the cake.
2: The
3: Assalamu alaikum wa and welcome back to the burning issue with myself Yasin Kippi. I'm in for Ridwan Ahmed. Now this is the last segment of tonight's programme and it's a very important segment because I've been reading all the WhatsApps that has that have been sent by the listeners. One of the most important things that we need to know is as a, as a Muslim community, and I'm a youngster listening to this and reading the comments and this has become an issue of frustration because the muslims are not united okay. and i i can vouch that i represent the the youth in this why do we need to be united because that was the way of the rasool ﷺ. he brought people together he removed differences and that's why the intention behind tonight's program was to showcase the various opinions on the specific topic about the capetonian muslim community and the connection with you know political agendas and institutions but more importantly what are the pathways to unity among Capetonian Muslims this is what we must all want unity does not mean conformity we've represented the various views alhamdulillah and those who contributed all agree that the path to unity is dialogue with good character love and mercy you know Tahabu, have mutual love that's what the Prophet said ta'ala. Those who show mercy will receive mercy. Irhamu man fil Have mercy on those on earth, and mercy will descend upon you. The solution is to prevent extremism from all sides. And you may, people mention extreme Sufis, extreme Salafis. Sure, but is that Islam? When ISIS bombs, do we say they represent all the Muslims? The question is, are we going to be contributors to the unity among the Muslimin? While the rest of the world, as the Prophet ﷺ said, are feasting upon the Muslim world. You know, like people at a, a dinner table or a supper table. Or preventing that unity from coming place. And that's why shaykh Muhammad West at the end, he said, you know, that when if you don't know the basics, then don't talk about these topics. And that's why Imam Malik anh, said, rahimahullah, he said, you know, to have debating and quarreling about religious issues among the Awam, people who are not schooled in this the the, you know the details it's haram but what we are bringing is the ulama how do we build unity we need to be mature when we we understand things not to harbor on a point that one of the sheikhs mentioned who says it it's about what is being said that we are our allegiance is to Allah and the Rasul and that this is the path to, to, to unity and we must promote that to be that transformative element in order to build unity to to Connect our hearts to the heart of the Rasul which is based on mercy, love and unity. Assalamu alaikum wa wa barakatuh.
1: The voice of the Cape, 91.3 FM stereo.